0: cino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DVD prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18+. The text for the sermon is Genesis 1:1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this seems like a no-brainer to those of us who are of faith, but to the world today, it's extremely countercultural. The world today does not believe that God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, it's a matter of great controversy today as to what did create the heavens and the earth. But Moses, when he writes this, says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first verse of the Bible as countercultural today as it was at the time of Moses. It's worth noting that when Moses wrote these words, Moses had been raised a prince of Egypt, and he was writing this countering the Egyptian view of things, the the fancy word that seminary professor of mine uses, the cosmogony, the, the theory of the beginning of everything. The Egyptian cosmogony was that there was a God who, well... He created other gods through self-pleasure, and together they all then combined to create things. And the sun was a god, and the moon was a god, and the stars were gods. And Moses is saying, no, in the beginning, God, and not just any god, not the Egyptian god, but the god of Israel, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he says, and this is so unique and, and, and distinct for all of the religions of the day when Moses is writing, he says that the sun and the moon are objects in the sky created by God. They are not gods themselves. It's not Apollo racing across the sky. It's not Horus. It, it's not Ra. It is an object. Both the sun and the moon are objects. And, and God, he says, created all of the stars of the heavens, objects in the sky. All of the religions of the world believed in a universe of gods. Gods creating other gods who create other gods who create things. Moses is saying there is one God. It is the God of Israel, and he created all things, the heavens and the earth. And he does something else as well. The word that Moses uses, created is the Hebrew word bara, He says God created it, and this is a word that is used only for God, only for Yahweh. God can brought. We cannot. The Tower of Babel was created by the hands of man. This word that God created, it is a manifestation of a divine will. That runs counter as well to the Egyptian cosmogony that a Pharaoh born of a human mother and a human father can somehow then get a divine presence of some kind cannot do that. Only the God of Israel can do this sort of creation. That is the context by which Moses begins the Bible, begins the first five books of the Bible, begins Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what are the implications? There are a lot of them. I don't have time for all of them. But let's look at some of what we get by Genesis 1.1. The implications. Number one, we get something, not nothing. The theory of the world today, the neo-pagans who are the secularists, who worship science, who worship creation, they believe that nothing created everything. For a while, they dismissed the Big Bang Theory. You know, the Big Bang Theory was conjured up by a Catholic priest who was a mathematician. And for a long time, science in the 1930s, when the theory came about, science rejected it. Albert Einstein rejected it. Many scientists believed it was just a Catholic trying to justify the words, let there be light. And now it's the theory of everything. But... Don't ask what came before it. To ask what came before it is a heresy in this day and age. I've actually encountered this. I have suggested that it is easier by faith to believe that God created the heavens and the earth than to believe by faith nothing created the heavens and the earth, that I as a person of faith know what came before the singularity. And the secularists of the age, they don't. That again is why it's so countercultural to say in the beginning God, because Everyone acknowledges a beginning, the, that Big Bang, but a lot of people, they come up with all sorts of things to try to justify or explain away what was before that. We say now that all the energy in the universe is all the energy that ever was in the universe created by the Big Bang. Matter and energy, that they, they can convert Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, E equals MC squared. Nothing can't create anything, everything, by the laws of physics something had to create it. So now they come up with these theories. It's a multiverse. It's a universe before this universe. It's turtles all the way down. We can take it by faith in a way that secularists can't. Hebrews eleven three. by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, this doesn't make us anti-science any more than a belief that nothing created anything makes you anti-science, although I would argue that would make you more anti-science because you violate your own rules of physics that you've decided are there. But it doesn't make Christians dismissive of science. If you get in a car, a car is a controlled reaction of explosions within an engine that are going to get you somewhere. When you turn on your light switch, your light switch is powered by a fire that heats water, that makes steam, that builds pressure, that turns a turbine, that moves a a copper wiring and and creates magnets and and creates electricity. Get it on an airplane. It's not by faith you know it's going to take off the ground. It's science. Christians are not anti-science. But the modern view is that there is sheer randomness. Lucretius. Lucretius was a Roman philosopher who wrote about the swerve. Now, this is a a modern English translation of what he wrote. You'll get the gist. It sounds very familiar to this day and age, but it was written 2,000 years ago. Listen to this. The swerve is the source of free will. Nature ceaselessly experiments. The universe was not created for or about humans. Humans are not unique. Human society began not in a golden age of tranquility and plenty, but in a primitive battle for survival. The soul dies. There is no afterlife. Death is nothing to us. All organized religions are superstitious delusions. Religions are invariably cruel. There are no angels, demons, or ghosts. The highest goal of human life is the enhancement of pleasure and the reduction of pain. The greatest obstacle to pleasure is not pain. It is delusion. Understanding the nature of things. ...generates deep wonder. It ends with a true statement. Understanding the nature of things generates deep wonder... ...but rejects the understanding of things. It's it's all a random chance. If life is a random accident... ...if it's survival of the fittest... ...if it's evolution... ...if it's atoms colliding upon atoms... If there is no soul, if there is no afterlife, there is no meaning. If there is no meaning, the maximization of pleasure and the reduction of pain means that I should be able to kill those who get in my way in order to elevate my pleasure. Well, then, of course, you have to get into this issue of the collective. And what does the collective say? The nihilism that comes from this, the nihilism that comes from this leads to Nazism. Leads to communism, leads to the devaluation of life. When you believe nothing created everything, you are your own God and you can create the universe as you see fit. You can believe that mankind is born heterosexual and homosexual and decides whether or not it's a boy or a girl. But if you recognize that in the beginning, God created everything, God gave us everything. Well, that leads us to number two. It puts us in our proper place. We can't say that nature created itself. William Paley, he gave us the the argument of the watch. You walk through a field, you find a watch laying on the ground. You look at the watch; it has gears, it has numbers, it moves in a certain way. Is it easier to believe that that watch had a watchmaker, or that a random collision of atoms brought about that watch lying in the field? What, what, What do you think is easier? We are a creature part of creation we are the watch we're not the creator when we put ourselves in the place of the creator and we begin worshiping creation bad things happen you know teddy roosevelt there's a story about teddy roosevelt he used to go on camping trips and he would bring people out in the middle of the night and he would look up he would look at all the stars moses you know he says in genesis 1 god he fixed the sun and he fixed the moon and the sky and he created all the stars Teddy Roosevelt would have people look at the stars, and once they stared for a while, he would say, puts us in our proper place. And he'd send people to bed. And it does. In the beginning, God put us in our proper place, gives us our proper perspective. Three. If in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we know that there is a sense of beauty and aesthetic of the world. When I was in seminary, there was a very big concept with my uh, systematic theology professor that in the beginning there is an objective sense of good. We know some things are good and some things are very good. The plants are good. The animals are good. The separation of the water from the land is good. The separation of the heavens from the earth is good. But the creation of mankind, it's very good. Creation is a good thing. Some people treat creation as as a bad thing, men as bad things, the the whole idea of the the body being the prison house of the soul. 1 Timothy 4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This flies in the face of so much Gnosticism, of so much of the secular world. Things in creation are good. God gives, now we can certainly abuse them. We can certainly make them bad. But creation itself is good. There is a sense of aesthetic, a sense of beauty in the world. We look around. We see the beauty of the cosmos. Go out on a ship in the middle of the ocean with few lights and look up. You can see the whole Milky Way. It's gorgeous. People in cities don't get to see that. It's good. It's very good. We get that sense of beauty from God himself. We also get a sense of ethics, morality. We get a sense of value in sexual relations. If we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, we're not allowed to reorder the heavens and the earth. We're not allowed to reorder relationships. God created mankind. He made us male and female. He said man should not be alone. We have this this craving for relationship but it also gives us right and wrong. If God creates, we're not the creators. There are limits to our abilities. We see in the real world a right versus a wrong. We look at natural evolution, the survival of the fittest, and we reject that idea. We look at the world around us and and we see things. Take, for example, an example that comes up often in this particular equation. Women's rights around the world. Women don't have rights, a majority opinion. It is in Judeo-Christian societies where you find people focusing on women's rights. You don't find it in Islam. You don't find it in Hinduism. You find it in Christianity where there is neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek. We are all equal in the eyes of God. Tim Keller talks about Arthur Leff. Let me read you what Arthur Leff wrote. When would it be impermissible to make the former intellectual equivalent of what is known in barrooms and schoolyards as the grand says who? In the absence of God, each ethical and legal system will be differentiated by the answer it chooses to give to one key question. Who among us ought to be able to declare a law that ought to be obeyed? stating that, baldly, the question is so intellectually unsettling that one would expect to find a noticeable number of legal and ethical thinkers trying not to come to grips with it. Either God exists or he does not. But if he does not, nothing and no one else can take his place. C.S. Lewis has talked about the objective morality around the world. Murder is bad all over. Incest is bad all over. Why, Why is it so? is it perhaps as G.K. Chesterton said, it's the democracy of the dead. Through trial and error over time, we've established an order just so, and we should give a vote to the dead before we disrupt those things. Perhaps it's the inner calling of God who created the heavens and the earth and ordered it so, and designated some things good and some things very good and some things bad. Lastly, and most importantly, And again, this is not an exhaustive list, but pay attention to this one. In the beginning, God, not nothing, God, created the heavens and the earth. And in that creation, we get an idea of who God is. Paul writes in Romans 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I would tell you, you look at nature, you look at mankind, you look at the universe, you look at the laws of physics, you look at the placement of the earth, its distance around the sun, its tilt, the fact that water freezes from the top to bottom instead of the bottom to the top, the fact that we on this planet are the only planet in existence that we know of where life can exist. And it's a whole lot easier to believe that God descended to earth and died and rose again from the dead than it is to believe that this is all a random chance, a random act. Now, a committed atheist isn't going to believe these things. A committed atheist knows there is a God in the quiet of the night. Perhaps he even is willing to entertain the doubts, but is overcome with hostility. It's not atheism. It's anti-theism. They are against God himself. They set themselves up as their own God. There's no such thing as a real atheist. Put it another way, God doesn't believe in atheists. Everyone has a God. You may say it's science. You may say it's yourself. You may say it's your silly buddy or your garden, but you worship something. Whatever you put first and foremost of your life, there is your God. Atheists have a God just as much as the rest of us. And in nature, we get an idea for the real God. He is a creator who has a sense of beauty and wonder, who is ethical, and who is relational, who wants to have a relationship with us and wants us to have a relationship with each other. But, you know, I can go on and on and on about the, the, the views of God and what we find in creation and the implications, but you can never arrive at Jesus by understanding that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as Christians, we know from John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know that to know Jesus is to know God. He's not an abstraction. He's not an angry, unfeeling God who put the world in play and stepped away from it. He's actively involved. He cries, he cares, he is hungry, he is thirsty. He calls to you. Now you cannot know that God without knowing Jesus. You can accept that there is a God, but you only get a vague sense of him without a personal relationship with Jesus. When you have the personal relationship with Jesus, by faith, you know the world was created by God. By faith, you know there is an eternity and you're just a stranger in this land passing through. By faith, you know all these things. By faith, if you know Jesus, God is not an abstraction. It's not a random creator when you know Jesus. Jesus is the word, the word of God jesus said let there be light we see jesus come into the world he wants relationships he calls us to him he cares for us he weeps for us he's willing to lay down his life for us that is the god of creation You can know so much about the God of creation, and unless you know that that is the God of creation, that Jesus is the God of creation, this is all an abstraction. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, let me stop here and say this is a little word game by Paul. There are actually many unknown gods. He's focusing on just the one unknown God. And he says, what therefore you worship as unknown. What he's actually saying, the word there is ignorance. What you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. The Greeks were prideful. They didn't want to be considered ignorant. Here comes this man telling them, "We're going to tell you about the unknown god, the god who made the world and everything in it, being lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man." This is Acts 17. Verse 25 Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets what's have said for we are indeed his offspring being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul knows God. He was a Jewish scholar. He knew what the Jews said about God, but then he had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and that changed his life. You may not have the physical manifestation of Jesus before you. You may not hear his voice, but you too can have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and it changes your perspective on the world. It's been changing people's perspective on the world for 2,000 years. And if you know Jesus, and you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it has profound implications for God creating the heavens and the earth, because then you must believe there is an Adam and Eve, because Jesus believed there was an Adam and Eve. If you believe in Jesus, you must believe that God created mankind in male and female. We didn't create man, and we certainly don't get to pick whether we're boy or girl. If you believe in Jesus, you must believe these things. That is why the world is so hostile to Jesus, because the world believes itself its own creator. It worships creation. It wishes to upend the natural order of things into an artificial order of things to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. If you believe in Jesus, you know the real God. You know the implications of God creating the heavens and the earth, they are real. It puts you in your proper perspective. It shows you there is an intrinsic, objective sense of beauty and ethic. It provides the meaning, the standard of our relationships. It draws you closer to him. God reveals himself in nature. He is the voice you hear in the quiet of the night, trying to build a relationship with you to answer the question, why am I here? You're here to glorify God. And through Christ Jesus, you know him. Let's pray. Holy Lord and Father, our King and our Sovereign, you created all things. You created us from the dust of the earth. You stitched us together in our mother's wombs. You bring us here together to hear your word. We are all called to something greater than ourselves. We are called to glorify you We are called to be faithful instruments of your will and to bear witness for you in this world. Grant us success. Fill us with your spirit. Guide us and direct us in all that we do. Grant us your strength and your hope to carry on until that day Christ Jesus comes again. And in his name we pray. Amen.